Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Arthritis Action Podcast. I'm Mark, your host for today, and on this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Nick Fogel. Nick is an Associate Professor in Rheumatology at the University of Southampton and the Alan Turing Institute Clinical AI Interest Group co-organizer. Hello, Nick. Hello. Lovely to see you. Thank you for joining us today. really appreciate it. So... Artificial intelligence, or AI, is a very hot topic at the moment. Uh, it seems almost daily that there's a new story about it and how it's being used. But, I mean, what I had known previously was how AI was being used in regards to arthritis. So I think this could be a fascinating subject for us to talk about. And uh, today we're lucky enough to have Nick to explain this to us, essentially. So, um, Nick, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm... Um... So I spent some of my time um, doing research, and that's mainly at the um, MRC Life Course Epidemiology Centre, um, which is a centre that focuses in on musculoskeletal diseases and looks at how they change across the life, life course. So that's all the way from, you know, from babies through adolescents, adults, and into older age, um, and how musculoskeletal diseases change during that time and then I also work as a consultant rheumatologist at Southampton General Hospital um, seeing a whole gamut of different rheumatological conditions. Wow a nice full schedule then. Absolutely yeah keeps me busy. Excellent brilliant so let's dive into the topic so talking about AI so I mean, in regards to the context we'll be discussing, can you give us a kind of a brief rundown as to what AI is and the role it has in the treatment of arthritis? Absolutely. So AI is essentially an, an umbrella term for the grand vision to produce machines that are as intelligent as humans. And this was a grand vision that you know, dates all the way back to Alan Turing and his early work even prior to the Second World War, which is, of course, you know, where where he became famous mm. in cracking the Enigma code. And it's interesting looking back at that early work because he wanted to produce a, a machine which was able to essentially think like a human and devise this thing called the Turing test, which was essentially when you have a human and a computer and they both sit an examination or set of questions and then there's a third um, entity which is a tester and if the tester can't tell the difference between the answers given by the computer or by the human then the computer is said to have passed the Turing test and that it's thought to have intelligence that is equal to that of humans so AI is really around that sphere it's around intelligence it's around you know that kind of performance it's not robotics I've heard about the um, and read about the Turing test before. It's, it's a really interesting thing. I'll, one thing I don't know, though, actually, is how often does an AI pass the Turing test? Oh, what do you mean by that? As in, um, with... as in, as in that the tester can't tell as to, as to which one is human. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I think even long before the most recent developments in large language models or, um, you know, GPT, for example, there have been things that have there have been algorithms or models that have been able to pass the Turing test. Um, so it's not cast iron discriminator of artificial intelligence mm. as we now understand it. Okay, great. So why did you choose to study in this area? 
I first became interested in it watching a TED talk actually back in about 2015. Okay. Um, it was a TED talk about computer vision because I'd heard about the fact that computers were able to look at images and be able to do things like spot cats. And I had just no idea how on, I couldn't even conceive how a computer would be able to see a cat mm. in an image. So I watched this TED talk, which was really interesting. Um, it talked about supervised machine learning um, and some of the, you know, what were then, I guess, relatively early facets of computer vision. And that's how I became interested in it. Um, and thinking about the way that it could be deployed within healthcare. Then, of course, there was the early work by um, by Deep, the DeepMind team and Google in producing models that could operate within mammography or machine learning models that were able to identify risks of, um, of acute kidney injury in inpatients. And really, it's kind of it spiraled from there. Cool. So how does this fit into arthritis then? So there's there, there are various different um, ways that machine learning, and machine learning is really the kind of statistical process by which artificial intelligence is achieved or one of the statistical, statistical processes. Um, and it's probably worth at this point just explaining a little bit about machine learning so it's automated so let's say you had an algorithm and an algorithm really is just a simple set of instructions mm -hmm. that goes that could be anything from what to do if a lamp is broken so if the lamp is broken then check that the lamp is switched on and if the lamp switched on and it's still not working then check the fuse and then check the bulb and if it's not working then then consider buying a new lamp so that would be just a set of instructions and of course you can program those into a computer so you could tell the computer to do those different things if a lamp lamp wasn't working but what machine learning does is it devises those algorithms those sets of instructions on on its own in order to take some kind of input and turn it into an output and there are different kinds of machine learning so there's supervised machine learning which is where if and, and a good example of this it would be data set which is a, by a data set i just mean you know a um collection of data and if we were to take shapes for example and if you have you take in supervised machine learning a group of shapes that have been labeled um for the type of shape that it is so triangle square hexagon and you show those in it via computer vision to some kind of statistical model that then begins to recognize the features that would be associated and match the label that has been given to it to the appearance of that shape. That is called the training set. And then after that, you then take a test set, which doesn't contain any labels, so just has shapes and no labels. And you ask that same model, to predict what the label would be based on the appearance of the shape and you can then judge the, the performance of it so that's supervised machine learning unsupervised machine learning would looks for patterns within data so for example if you were to take uk biobank which is an enormous data set of you know genomic physiological questionnaire data 
that are taken from half a million people in the UK. And you would say, okay, all of these people have got osteoarthritis. Find the features that are associated with osteoarthritis. The unsupervised machine learning would then go into all those data and look at different features that might point towards a diagnosis of osteoarthritis, for example. So looking for automatically looking for patterns in data. Um, and the third kind is called reinforcement learning. And this would be the most similar to the way that humans learn. Mm -hmm. So this and, and the best example of this is probably self-driving cars. So you start with an agent, which would be a car. And then you have an environment, which might be all of the streets um, in London between Buckingham Palace and Wembley Stadium. And the aim or the goal of the car is to get from Buckingham Palace to Wembley Stadium, self-driving. And the environment inflicts different states onto the agent, onto the car. And so that might be weather conditions, that might be traffic, that might be cut-off roads. And what happens is that Every time the car gets a little bit nearer to Wembley Stadium, it gets a reward. And so it then starts to make decisions in terms of turning down certain roads that mean that it gets closer and closer to that, but avoiding some of the environmental factors. So maybe avoiding some of the traffic and thereby gets closer and closer and closer to, to Wembley Stadium. So those are three types of um, of machine learning, really. So supervised, unsupervised, and reinforcement. Okay, so could this be used, say, like for example, the diagnosis of arthritis? Like, if you'd input input like all symptoms and all like possible like trajectories it could go for arthritis into say an algorithm or something, then you would be able to decipher what's going on with a person. Then, yeah. So if you were to take um, if you were to take osteoarthritis as an example. In a supervised machine learning model, you might take x-rays of people who have got maybe normal looking knees and um, they look normal to us, then label them, for example, with whether they developed osteoarthritis in 10 years time and train up a model that can then look at an x-ray and then give a 10 year risk of developing osteoarthritis of the knees based on the appearance of any x-ray um so that that would be a potential example of um the use of supervised machine learning in identifying uh, uh you know early osteoarthritis mm, and that could in theory then be applied to all different types of arthritis as well then yeah it certainly could could be i suppose at this point it's probably worth also mentioning what how computer vision works so um if you think about, let's say, a black and white image of a bone and think about what the computer is actually seeing, because the computer doesn't actually see a bone. What the computer sees is more like pixels, you know, black pixels where the edge of the bone is and white pixels in the middle. And then maybe, let's say, white pixels around the outside. Mm -hmm. But actually... But whenever there's a pixel, and this is a black and white image, it's actually assigned ones and zeros, depending on whether they are black 
or white pixels. And so actually, rather than ending up with a kind of pixelated image, for every place that there's a pixel, there's actually a number which is related to an intensity. And so you've got zero and you've got one. And then if something's gray, then it's somewhere in between. And so you can use those numbers in order to try and identify mathematical patterns within the image. And it's really that way that the computer sees a cat in an image, or it identifies risks on an image that might be associated with the future development of different types of arthritis. Interesting. So, I mean, so how how does this affect like um, the research side as well? I mean, is it? I assume it's currently being used in research as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, computer vision is really one of the lowest hanging fruit in terms of the deployment of machine learning and artificial intelligence in healthcare in general. So, if you're to look at you know a regulator like the FDA in the US. The vast majority, over 90% of the AI tools that have been approved for the use in healthcare are related to computer vision, are related to deployment within radiology. And that's partly because there are enormous data sets of digital images that may contain information that we're not currently identifying and um, could be used in order to improve patients care so in our in our own research at the mrc life course epidemiology center um we've been working with colleagues in electronics computer science in order to try and identify features on certain types of scans that might be associated or discriminate people who are at a higher risk of fracture in the field of osteoporosis so so what are the positives that this kind of brings to the treatment as well. So one of the things that you that that you want you want to really do is use some of these large data sets in order to try and personalize your approach to patients. And obviously in, in rheumatoid arthritis, we've now we're now very blessed to have a number of different medications that we can use. So if one particular medication isn't tolerated or isn't working, then we can switch to a different disease modifying anti-rheumatic drug whether that's a conventional so-called DMARD um, or whether it's a biologic DMARD. But one of the brilliant things would be if we could actually rather than giving someone the medication and then find waiting to see whether it has worked or not, because sometimes these can take months in order to show whether they're working effectively, if we could predict which medication was going to work for which patient, then we would be able to personalise our approach to that patient, get them treated more quickly, get their condition under control so that they can have improved outcomes and live, you know, a, a better quality of life even quicker. Excellent. So it's almost like it's kind of giving recommendations as to what the doctor could be prescribing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So that definitely sounds like it'd be very valuable for, so maybe so like, you know, a GP or whoever, rheumatologist who doesn't specialise in a certain one, it would just add an extra layer of expertise to them. Yeah, so that's one of the key ways that AI could be deployed in healthcare is in order to um, enhance the performance of maybe, you know, more junior colleagues or mm. clinicians who don't have as much, as much experience in a particular area, but it acts as a kind of supervisor. And it's really important at this point to just mention that 
you know, humans need to be in the loop. Though we can't, and I think we're a long way away from AI operating independently. And any decision that is made using an artificial intelligence tool is the responsibility of the clinician that's looking after that patient. So clinicians need to not only understand it well enough for their own comprehension, but well enough that they're able to explain it to patients explain the way that it's influencing their care so the patients have then adequately consented for their use. And at the Alan Turing Institute in the Clinical AI Interest Group, we're developing a suite of educational tools. We've held a summer school this year for clinicians who are interested in artificial intelligence, teaching them about the basics of artificial intelligence, the ethics of artificial intelligence, and some of the ways that it's being deployed uh, presently in healthcare so that we increase that educational level um, and there's also work going on at Health Education England also around this same area. That was one thing I was going to touch upon as well is like you know how do you kind of toe that line between the human interaction and like the nuance of how a doctor would approach something to the computer thinking? Yeah do you mean um do you mean the interaction itself, the kind of communication skills element or um, how you actually include humans within the decision making process? I think I suppose how you then maybe perhaps how you decide when the computer is right or wrong, if you know what I mean. Because yeah. a, a computer could say like, I'll prescribe this, this and this. But if the doctor doesn't feel that's correct, how does that kind of situation work out? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, and that's where clinical judgment really comes into play and where you need to know how the artificial intelligence tool is deriving its answer. So a good example would be within osteoporosis, there's something called the FRAX algorithm. And this is used to look at osteoporosis risk, which is obviously relevant to that condition, but also highly relevant to rheumatoid arthritis um, and other inflammatory arthritis or anyone taking steroids for any reason, as that increases um, the risk of osteoporosis. And what the FRAX calculator does is it takes a number of different parameters. So the person's age, their um, sex, their weight and height, whether their parent had fractured a hip, whether they're taking steroids, whether they have had a fracture in the past, whether they've got rheumatoid arthritis, whether they've got other obvious causes of secondary osteoporosis, and also whether they drink um, three or more units of alcohol per day on average. And that can be supplemented with a measure called bone mineral density, which is taken from DEXA scans, in order to provide a 10-year risk of hip fracture and of major osteoporotic fracture and so when those when that risk percentage is given that's used against a threshold for treatment to decide whether or not someone requires anti-osteoporosis medication but as a clinician i can see that those are the although it's very good and it's excellent on a population level there are some things that the frax algorithm doesn't look at so at this, these, and these are being added into newer iterations of FRAGs. But for example, a person's falls risk, because obviously if a fracture is a combination of bone fragility and an accident of some kind, be it a fall, 
um, or or some kind of some kind of you know a, a fall onto a hip or a fall on an outstretched hand. These are those are the things that go on to develop it. So someone's falls risk is intimately related to their fracture risk, but that wasn't incorporated into the early iterations of fracs. So although their overall fracture risk, according to fracs, may not be might not reach a, a threshold if they're at very high risk of falls and they're on the borderline then the clinician might say actually this has been really helpful information but together with these other risks we're i'm going to use my own expertise and say actually i think you would benefit from treatment in this case so how far can this go i mean is there scope for like ai to replace certain roles in healthcare or and are there sort of some roles that essentially are safe and could never be replaced um it's a really it's a i mean it's a great question i don't i think that the standard response to that question across the field is that ai won't replace clinicians but clinicians that use ai will replace clinicians who don't use ai and i mean you know even earlier on today um you know there was news breaking about work going on at university college which is um, a team using a computer vision technique in order to identify different structures for neurosurgeons performing pituitary surgery. And the AI has already seen 200 procedures, pituitary tumor procedures, which it would take a surgeon 10 years in order to see and perform. And so... The uh, the studies from that are showing that it improves the performance of surgeon, even experienced surgeons, compared to those who aren't using the artificial intelligence. So I think it'll be used to improve performance. I don't think there'll be any replacement yet. And I think is it's again just to emphasise, it's crucial that a human, a clinician, needs to be in the loop. Is this something that's now being included into uh, like training medical students as well now? Is there like, you know, an AI component to their learning as a mandatory field now? Yeah, that's a really good question. We're actually doing a piece of work at the moment at the Alan Turing Institute's clinical AI interest group around an overarching curriculum for artificial intelligence. And that would include at, at medical schools and in Southampton, this year, we're running a clinical AI special study module as well that will be running for um, for our medical students. So it's definitely entering the curriculum. Um, there's definite interest and acknowledgement across the medical education community that this is a field which is growing and that, you know, the doctors of tomorrow need to be well trained in. So is it like widespread now where it is everywhere or is it some places are doing it more than others? Or? I'd say some places are probably doing it more than others, okay. but but it's it's definitely on the increase. And I think that at national conferences, it's on the agenda. So I think everywhere is aware of it. Interesting to see what that's going what, what, to bring. To what, how it will manifest. Yeah. yeah. Mark, can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. So what would be your... Um, your feeling if a clinician was to say okay so an artificial intelligence tool has told me that this is how i need to treat you let's say that you were a patient with rheumatoid arthritis mm -hmm. and that you said to me which medication do you think i ought to use and i say oh i'm just going to 
asked the artificial intelligence, it said that you should be on methotrexate, for example. How would you feel about that? Um, good question. Um, I think you're the first person to ask me a question on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't. I think personally, I would be fine with it. I think you are. You kind of answered it for me in a way, like earlier on when you mentioned that. I would be happy with it as long as there is kind of the supervision of the experience of a human doing it as well. Like I'm happy mm. for the answer to be given out. And then like, I would ask the doctor, like, do you agree with that? Yeah. If they said yes, then I'd be absolutely fine with it. But you know, if yeah. you get that one where they kind of give you a look, like a little side, like, eh, I'd, I'd go a different route. Go, well, let's maybe go for your one then. Yeah. But then it also might possibly depend on who the doctor was, for example. Yes. You know, if it, if it, some people all give off like an aura of competency so much better than others. And, mm. you know, if it's someone who seems confused throughout the whole process, I might take the machine's answer. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But let's, let's uh, no. I'm, I'm making doctors sound bad here. Like, you know, no, obviously no, no, no. vast majority are great. But if, um, you know, it's- I... I think there's there's the the fact of both of them I would have to weigh up in my head. Well, it's it, it's interesting you should say about that kind of confidence element. There's a, there was a really interesting study um, earlier this year which um, took Chat GPT, um, mm. and I think most people will know what we mean by that. But um, just for the uninitiated, GPT stands for Generative Pre-trained Transformer. And it's something called a large language model. So it's been trained on vast swathes of the internet and um, and has essentially learned to produce language and answers based on the information that's gleaned from there. And what you can do when you've got something, this thing called a large language model is you can bolt on different applications. And so one of them is called ChatGPT, which I'm sure everyone a lot of people are now familiar with mm. um, where you can type in questions and you get answers back and what a group in the states did was they would they took questions from uh the the, the website reddit do you know reddit Mark? yeah i know reddit yeah so it's basically a message board exactly yeah it's a me- it's a message message board and you've got different streams on there mm. and there's something i think it's called ask doc um there's an ask doc stream and in order to be someone who can reply to a question on that message board, you have to have been certified as a health professional. And so different people put up different questions. So it could be um, uh, my mother's got um, osteoarthritis of the knee. Um, what would be the best treatment recommendations for her? And then a clinician will write an answer under with, underneath. And so what this team did was they took a, a selection of these questions and answers from clinicians and then they took the questions and they just put the questions to chat gpt and then took the answers from chat gpt and took the answer from the clinician and then showed both of those to some blinded clinicians and asked them to grade those answers based on uh, the efficacy of the clinical information that was being given and also the empathy that was displayed within the the answer. And what they found was that not, not only did ChatGPT seem to perform better when it came to the clinical accuracy, um, but more worryingly was that it was more effective when it came to the, um, the empathy 
displayed within the responses. That is not the answer I was expecting to hear. <laughs> no, it's not. But I, there's an important caveat here, which because yeah. that was the headline, was that chat GPT is more empathetic than doctors. I think if you look, look deeper into it, and if you look at some of the answers on on Reddit, you can see that it's it's an answer that isn't being delivered by ChatGPT because for a start, ChatGPT wouldn't make grammatical errors or typos, and yet there are some typos in the responses that are given by clinicians. So, I whether it was truly blinded, um, I'm I, you know I think there are probably biases there, but it's it's it was certainly um, an interesting and thought provoking study and a thought provoking finding as well. Definitely. We w- I will also add, just for anyone going on Reddit for their medical advice, it may not be the best place in general to go, so do talk to Definitely your doctor. <laughs> go to your local rheumatology advice line. Absolutely. Uh, of course, the last question for this one. Um, can you give any current examples of AI treatment for arthritis? Because, I mean, one thing that we do, actually, at the charities, we work with um, an app called Good Boost, which is basically like a therapy app, exercises. I don't know if you've heard of that one or not. No, I haven't. I haven't actually, but I'll certainly look it up. Um, so in terms, so AI can be used in a few different facets. It can be used for identifying people who are at risk mm-hmm. and trying to catch them early. It can be used to help clinicians make decisions about treatments. Um, but it could, it can also directly be used as as therapy. Um, but the ways that I would have thought at the moment that would be deployed is through things like um, cognitive behavioral therapy for example so in people who are you know suffering with chronic pain fibromyalgia chronic pain from any any possible condition um cognitive behavioral therapy is is helpful and there is a strong evidence base behind its use um and certainly one of the first applications to be given nice approval was a an application called sleepio which which was to help insomnia um, and had a cognitive behavioral therapy algorithm that was driven by artificial intelligence so um i think that that is probably the field what what does um what was the one you good boost good boost so again it's basically it's, it also involves ai in the sense that it will it gives you like a set of exercises and things doing based on a set of questions that you'll answer you know like how yeah, how your knees where's your pain where's it affect you how is it at the beginning of each session, it'll then ask you what your energy levels are, and, mm-hmm. so on, and then it will adapt a personalized workout for you, and then sort of give the person that, and it will then learn. Like at the end, you get to review each one. So if you don't like certain things or aren't capable, then in the next yeah. workout, it will give you one that will exclude those, and it, it's really good. So we run we run sessions twice a week via that. So should anyone listening wish to do these sessions? You can you know, get in contact with us and we can sort those out for you. Very good. Just done on your phone or tablet. Very good. Check out Good Boost. Yeah. And is there is there a is do people have to pay for it? Um, if yes, there is a small charge to I believe. You do get some sessions for free, so it's not. Yeah. Like, it just depends on how many sessions you do as to how much you're going to end up paying for it. Great. But yeah, definitely worth looking into. Very good. Uh, and can people find it on the App Store? Yes, on the app. So you're doing my job for me here, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can find it on like you know, on the Apple Store and on Google Play as well. Great. 
Brilliant. We found in some leisure centres as well because there's a pool-based element to it. So there's some waterproof tablets that some of the leisure centres that do have it, you can then sort of do it in the pool with your tablet on poolside and then do a water-based workout as well. So there's some really interesting Gosh. things a lot around it. And it watch and it watches you doing. No, it doesn't watch you. It will just basically it will give you an animation to teach you how to do an exercise. Okay. So yeah, for ones like that, you will still have a facilitator in a swim pool. That's mostly for health and safety reasons. Yeah. But um, it will basically give you an animation to follow of like how to do a sit to stand squat or something like that. And then at the end of it, you can tell them how you felt about it, like if you liked it or if you didn't like it, and then it will then choose whether to put that back into your workout the next time yeah very good Mm. sounds excellent yeah so it's really interesting to hear that it's being ai is being used in so many different avenues yeah yeah i and you know i think that will i think that will only increase but we just need to make sure that the foundational challenges are addressed and um it is worth mentioning at this point that there are issues with um, you know, that can be issue, issues with bias. Um, mm. So if, for example, you in a supervised training set in machine learning, which, you know, I talked earlier about shapes, um, if you only do it, if you train it up in humans in only certain populations, then mm. the algorithm will only really operate to the same performance level if it's looking at exactly that same population. So let's say it's a UK population, and then you try and deploy that tool in an African population, the performance may well not be as good. Mm. And so there's a another very good interest group at the Alan Turing Institute called the um, Health Equity interest group and their focus is really on trying to ensure that artificial intelligence is a mechanism which acts to to reduce health inequalities rather than to exacerbate them Mm. Um, and that that is a really key foundational challenge that we need to address as we move forward Um, and that i'm pleased to say that there's there is lots of work going on in that and actually lots of grants out as well for you know looking at that particular area and trying to address that challenge excellent that's great to hear really well is there anything else you would like to to plug or to mention or to or anything you would like to part part us with (laughs) no it's been a real but it's been a real pleasure really thought-provoking um and um and a, a hugely enjoyable experience Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, if you would like to find out any more information about arthritis and all the stuff that we do at the charity, including Good Boost as well, of course, you can visit www.arthritisaction.org.uk and do feel free to send us an email if you have any questions or any comments or anything at all. You can send that to podcast at arthritisaction.org.uk. So thank you so much, Nick, for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That's been hugely enjoyable. Excellent. Thank you. And thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.